When are the moments in your life that you feel most human? Perhaps it's when you're in the midst of something amazing in creation, like a beautiful sunset or the Grand Canyon. Maybe it's a milestone in your life, like the birth of a child. Perhaps it's those moments when you realize your limits. I remember about 15 years ago, I was burning the candle at both ends, just being super busy at work with young kids, and it was a little bit nuts, and I was having lunch with a guy from the church at the Bob Evans right over here. You guys remember when Bob Evans used to be at McAllister's, where it is right now? And we're having lunch together, and we had just eaten, and I probably ate something a little heavier than I should have eaten for lunch. And he was sharing with me something that he had written, and I started reading it, and I fell asleep. (laughs) And I don't know how long he waited until he said, are you sleeping? (laughs) Human moments. (laughs) Maybe, though, the most human moments we have are the moments when we come face to face with death. As a pastor, I've been asked to be a part of people's lives in that most sacred of moments when people's life on this planet comes to a close. I've been at the bedside of someone who had lived a full life, watching their breathing slowly come to an end with the family all around, praying, mourning. I've been in the hospital of the room of a child with cancer, reading scripture, watching tears roll down faces, listening to the sounds of sadness and grief. Today we come to what many argue is the most profound human moment in the life of Jesus. And for all of us, an extremely needed and important moment. Theologically, we believe that as Jesus was here on this earth, there is this thing that existed in him where he was 100% God and 100% human at the same time, not like a 50-50 thing, but 100% all the time. And grappling with that mystery is something that's hard to understand. And here we come to this moment of his humanness. Sometimes, frankly, I think it's easier for us to accept his godness and his divinity as we see him do miracles, but it's the humanness of Jesus that sometimes strikes us. You see, one of the most foundational aspects of the gospel is that Jesus took our place, our human place. He was our substitute. And in order for Jesus to be our representative, it's critical that we know that he experienced life the way we do. And this moment in the garden goes beyond any moment any of us will ever experience. And really, that's why this passage invites us to trust him. It's a simple invitation. 
At some point, we're all going to come face to face with our humanity and our finiteness. And because of the humanity of Jesus, we have a place to turn. My encouragement to us all is to discover that place and turn to him. So this morning, we'll look at three aspects of this passage, three words, if you will, the sorrow, the cup, and the father. The sorrow, the cup, and the father. When I was 20, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. It was truly a life-changing experience. And at all of the important places where Jesus had been, there are, is actually a church to commemorate it, whether it was exactly in that place or not. There is a church to commemorate all the places Jesus had been in Israel. So you can imagine that here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a church over the rock that they would say is the alleged place where Jesus prayed. But what's interesting about this, if I can describe it to you in in Jerusalem, right outside the city walls, actually, is there's this alley that goes up, and there's walls on both sides of this alley. And so when you walk up this alley, to the right, you walk through these iron gates, and you walk into this place where there's this church and this, I mean, it's a beautiful church. There's olive trees in there, and this beautiful church over this big rock, and it's where all the tourists go, and there's tons and tons of people going in and out of there. Interestingly enough, To the left, if you turn to the left, there is this massive garden, maybe about twice the size of our sanctuary, that's just filled with olive trees and a bench. And one morning while in Israel, we had the morning free, and so I went to this location, and there was a guy guarding the garden, and... Back then, I could be annoying, and so I went up to him, and I was like, hey, what does it take to get into this garden? And he kind of pretended like he didn't understand me, and he was just like, shooed me away. But I was not, you know, I was persistent, and so I just stayed there, and about five minutes later, I was like, hey, can I, what does it cost to get me into the garden? Well, after about 30 minutes, I guess he realized I wasn't going anywhere, and so he let me into the garden. He said, 10 minutes. So I went, and I'm, I, I wish I could describe to you the beauty of the, this place, the serenity of this massive garden right outside this huge city with olive trees and this bench. And so I walked over to the bench, and I opened up to the Garden of Gethsemane passage. And I was there for two hours I think he just forgot I was in there. (laughs) Just me, in this garden. And I was so deeply struck at the humanness of what Jesus was experiencing in this prayer in this moment. That here he was, crying out to God in the simplicity of the world, saying, God, can you do something? The words here to describe what Jesus was feeling are very significant. Mark chooses some words that are not often used to try to help us dig into what was going on. And if I can read it again, verses 33 and 34, he says, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed. I love how he adds the qualifier, greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, distressed, troubled, overwhelmed, sorrowful unto death. There's this sense of alarm in him, a downcast soul, like the Psalms say, a burden with grief. Have you ever experienced a moment like that? I'm sure many of us have, and the reality is we all will. This passage, those words are so encouraging to me. Because you see, Christians have this tendency to minimize moments like this. We like to throw on our Pollyanna hats and drop our cliches and say everything will work out and just trust God. And This moment in Jesus' life as a human, it legitimizes when we are overwhelmed. Let that sit on you just for a second. This week, when at your job you are overwhelmed, this week when you just can't handle one more second of your toddler, this week when you feel like that one thing that you've been praying for for six months just isn't worth praying for about anymore, that the overwhelmingness, that the sadness, that the anxiousness, that depression, whatever it is, it's those things Jesus is saying to us all right now that are not a sin. This moment says in our humanness, we will be overwhelmed. Now the question is what do we do when we are overwhelmed? For me, many, many a time, I love to go to whatever comfort that is that will make what seems to be overwhelming go away, even if just for a few moments. I've told you before, and I don't mean this to be funny, but Kraft mac and cheese is like there's something about that food that just brings me, you know, we all have our comfort foods that we go to, right? And just for those few moments, it allows me to ignore my humanity. What do you do to ignore your humanity? Jesus shows us that moments like these call for us to approach and go to the creator of the universe, that he invites us, that he longs for us in our humanity, in our overwhelmedness to approach him. And what I love about how Mark retells this story and frankly how what Jesus really did happen is that he had to go not once, not twice, but three times, right? We, we have this thing in our brains where it's like, okay, I'm just gonna pray about it this one time and then I'm supposed to be good, right? And then I go tell everybody, I'm just gonna trust God. And, but here we see this powerful picture of what's going on in our experience of humanity that Jesus sets up for us. And something did happen. Let's acknowledge that here, that something does happen in the midst of the sorrow and the struggle that in the prayer, something happened for Jesus. 
Eugene Peterson, he said this about it. He said, prayer is the way we work our way out of the comfortable but cramped world of self and into the spacious world of God. Praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but what God wants. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. We see here, Jesus, that he's in this struggle, right? That he's thinking, I, 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 this cup that's about to, I'm going to have to drink, God. If there's another way, if we can figure out another way, can that be? And he's bringing that question and that desire and that anxiety and that tension to God. And he's listening for God and what he would have. And I love how he describes it, that what happens is, is it's oftentimes in prayer that we start to see and comprehend and experience what it is that maybe God may be doing here. You see, what I love about what Jesus is doing is he's not suppressing his desires, which is oftentimes what the world will tell us to do, but rather he brings them to God. And he's completely submitted to the will of God. The secular world would tell us, well, just change your situation, just run away from it. But changing our situation just frankly kicks the can down the road. And the pattern we see here that Jesus establishes for us is to pray big and pray surrendered. That when we come before the creator of the universe with our overwhelmingness and our anxiousness and our struggles and our pains and our heartaches and all of those things, and we cry out to him, God, can you change this situation, please? We see that he adds to that a very humble and gracious submittedness to him by saying, yet not my will, but your will be done. God, I believe you can change this circumstance, but I trust you. It's interesting. He, he actually makes this statement in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I wonder if he thinks about them more broadly than we think when he's making that statement, that actually what Jesus is saying in his big and surrendered prayer is he's saying, God, I know you are big enough to change this situation. All things are possible for you. And what he's also saying, which is often hard for us to say, is that I also know that you are big enough. All things are possible for you to sustain me in this situation, no matter what may come. And so here, God the Father says, there is no other way. And the reality of this human moment should lead us to a very important question about Jesus. You see, think with me for just a moment about his humanity here, and he's bringing this intense question to God, and he's saying, God, what's about to happen? If there's another way, I wish there could be another way. And, and I believe he is wholeheartedly, when he takes these steps, he is wanting to go where God wants him to go, even though what's ahead of him is going to be something we could never imagine or think. And, and we, we should be wondering and asking this question about Jesus that we know stories of individuals and Christians throughout history who have faced death with great composure and courage more than we see here in Jesus. 
Think about this just for a second. We, we know people like the story of Stephen and Acts and martyrs throughout generations and throughout history. People you may know that when death was at their doorstep, they would say, bring it on. Because what's ahead of me is greater than now. And here we see the very opposite in some ways from Jesus. So the question that should be in our brains is what is going on for Jesus? Why was he so overwhelmed? And it leads us to his prayer about the hour and the cup. Because the answer to what was going on for him was the cup. It must be that Jesus is aware of facing something more than simply his own death. In fact, more than the betrayal that he was about to face from his friends, the beating to the almost edge of death, the suffering from the crown of thorns, or even the death on a cross, the most brutal death, frankly, possibly known in the history of mankind. All of that physically, for sure, and emotionally, for sure, was agonizing. And beyond what any of us could imagine to experience. But for Jesus, it was the cup that was most agonizing. What is the cup? Well, the cup throughout Scripture is used to represent God's wrath, God's punishment poured out on sin and sinners. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, the prophets would often say the cup of God's wrath. They would be explicit in saying it. And Jesus knows what is ahead. He knows that he will drink the cup of God's wrath, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God against sins of all type, heinous crimes, adultery, careless words, dishonoring thoughts, lies, whatever it may be, all of it will be punished by God the grand, great cup of the wrath of God must be taken. It's one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. The cup that we would be called to drink. Who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil. If the anticipation of the cup of God's wrath on the cross was so great that it caused distress and alarm and overwhelming sorrow, what must it have actually been like? And my friends, this is our hope this morning. This is why we are called to trust. Because he who went through something for you and for me so deep and intense that we could barely grasp a hold of it is now something that you and I will never have to do. The great God of the universe who has to punish sin, which is part of his loving character, that he has to be just, he has to take out on what has been done in evil and he must do something about it, shows us love 
by actually taking the punishment out upon himself. John Calvin, famous theologian and reformer, he wrote this about the cup. There are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. That he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great, yes. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. It's not just that Jesus suffered. He suffered for our great wickedness. And the beauty and wonder and majesty of Christianity is that it tells us here not to mimic Christ, but rather to manifest Christ. That the wonder of this picture of what happened here is that we're being invited into this new way of living and understanding where we're being told that cup that was yours to drink is now empty. We're called to follow Jesus because he was the trailblazer that he went before us so that we could walk behind in what he had accomplished for us. Jesus is placing all his trust in the Father and he experienced forsakenness and the wrath of God and the cup of God's wrath so that when we put our faith and trust in him, we would never have to be forsaken in the midst of our Gethsemanes. Jesus knew that the purpose of his Gethsemane was, and he said, your will be done so that we would never have to be forsaken in the midst of ours. Now, if Jesus, being fully God and fully human, is able to do that, we should then be asking, what resource gave him the power to do that? Was there something that looking at what was in front of him, which we now don't have to face, knowing that our Gethsemanes will never even pale in comparison to the one that he was facing. He, though, bringing us into that, inviting us into what he was experiencing, there must have been something that was a resource that empowered him to be able to step into that. And I believe that the answer to that is the very first word of his prayer in verse 36. He said, Abba, Daddy, It's one powerful word. Abba literally means daddy. How does that make you feel to use that word? Abba is a term of intimacy and trust and affection. Perhaps our willingness to even talk to God in such transparency and closeness would show our understanding of who he is. That's what Jesus is saying here, that what enables him to really trust God is that God is not some cosmic leader in the world that is trying to do something and has this grand plan, ha, 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 that he's working out, right? But he's also not just our big bearded grandfather, that there's something very beautiful and holistic about this invitation, this, this picture that he gives to us, this, this powerful resource that he invites us to engage with God in the same way, that we would come with intimacy and trust and affection to a good father 
who would know when it's time to say no, who knows when we need discipline, who knows when his plan for glory is better than how we could ever imagine or see. And he's saying, I can come to this God and say, Abba, Daddy, your will be done. What empowers him is that. He did it because he knew the Father's heart. We will never say to God what you will until we understand and know God's heart, till we know him as Abba. That kind of love, the love that is perfectly expressed with justice, the love that is able to dissolve a mountain of wrath is the love we were all looking for. No family love, no friend love, no relational love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love. Nothing could possibly satisfy us. All those loves will let us down. But the love of Abba Father, the good father, That is the love that enabled Jesus to say, your will be done. And the question to us this morning is, do we know that love? You see, this is the next great garden. In the first garden, Adam and Eve said, our will be done. And that meant, We all had to drink from the cup of God's wrath. But now in another garden, Jesus says, your will be done. And this moment starts the path of our Savior draining God's cup of burning wrath and anger down to the bottom. That cup is now empty. God's poured out his wrath, full strength, undiluted on his son. And Paul summarizes the meaning of this great event in 2 Corinthians when he writes, for our sake, that's your and mine, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could offer us a new cup, the cup of fellowship, the cup of friendship, the cup of communion. And yes, in our lives, we may experience suffering and struggle and pain and heartache, but not wrath. We don't get wrath anymore. We get the sweet satisfying reality of the eternal fellowship in Jesus Christ with Abba Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the cup we now get to drink forever and ever. This is the cup that we offer to those who don't yet know him, imploring each other and all we come across to say, come, drink of this cup because Jesus drank the other cup for you. My friends, 
Might we this week reflect on the humanity of Jesus, give thanks for his sorrow, give thanks for the cup that he drank, and go before an almighty God and cry, Abba, Father, you are good. And let us drink of the cup of fellowship and communion that is now as ours because of Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty, awesome God, we are grateful to you this morning for your son, Jesus. And we now ask that as we partake of this crazy and wonderful and beautiful meal of communion, that as we drink now of a different cup, that we would find true fellowship and communion with you, that in our humanity and our humanness, we would learn to trust you just a little bit more today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.